0: It's estimated that there are some 4,200 religions in the world. 4,200. And according to the Pew Center, over 8 in 10 worldwide identify with one of those religions. Now, for an increasingly secular society like our own, numbers like that can shock us. And yet, for millennia, religion has dominated humanity's existence. It drives culture. It shapes beliefs. But we also know that's increasingly changing. Here in the U.S., religion's affiliation, you know, religion itself or affiliation with the religion, that's been steadily declining. So while those with no religious affiliation has actually grown by 50% in just the last decade. So over 25%, roughly, of Americans wouldn't religiously affiliate with any organized or institutionalized religion, which is an astounding number, just given our past, titanic cultural shift. And certainly, some of these shifts can be explained by what we're taught and what we're fed, either through schools, through media, through culture at large. So, for example, renowned sociologist and professor Phil Zuckerman published a book called Society Without God, arguing, in fact, that it is the least religious societies that also tend to be the most peaceful, prosperous, and equitable. There is, he argued, in fact, an inverse relationship between religious belief and a society's well-being. Now, that's not just an argument, though, among academics. According to a recent study in the UK, more than half of Britons think that religion actually does more harm than it does good does more harm than it does good. I wonder what you think. Have you come through these doors this morning, perhaps assuming that religion does more harm than it does good? Now, that may sound like a ridiculous question to pose in the middle of a church service, right? Why else would you be here? may sound strange. But it's certainly not a strange question to the masses outside these walls, And it's not a question Jesus himself was unfamiliar with. It makes you wonder, what would Jesus have to say? Is there any chance that Jesus might actually agree with the secularists? Is is there a chance he might actually agree that religion could, in fact, do more harm than do good? Well, friends, to help us think through these things this morning, I want us to be turning back in our Bibles to the book of Mark, to the book of Mark. We're going to be in chapter 2 going through verse 18 all the way through chapter 3, verse 6. So we're going to be 2.18 through six. And if you don't possess a Bible, you can find our passage this morning on one of the Bibles we provide for you right there in the seat back. And you can find it on page 837. Page 837. And as you turn, just as a sort of bit of a reminder, Jesus in this section is in the midst of a series of conflicts with the religious leaders. So, recall back in the beginning of chapter two, Jesus has the audacity to claim the authority to forgive sins, right? A prerogative that belong only to God. And then he calls this tax collector. Last week, you know, we thought of the equivalent of a national traitor to join his ranks, and then not only does he call this man Levi to join his ranks, he then, in fact, has the gall to go dining and drinking with this tax collector and all of his friends. Right? Any morally upstanding Jew would be perplexed, if not indignant, over Jesus and his behavior. But Jesus isn't done. In our text this morning, we're going to witness three more confrontations that Jesus has with the religious authorities. And with each confrontation, the tension is going to rise. And with each, we actually learn something more about Jesus's attitude toward religion and the attitude we're to have toward him. These conflicts they teach us, they reveal something of Jesus' attitude toward religion and our attitude toward him. So we pick up chapter 2, verse 18. I'll begin reading. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, "'Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them?' "'As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and a worse tear is made.' And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But no, new wine is for fresh wine skins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Well, friends, that very last verse, that very last line should hit us like an avalanche. I mean, we're barely two chapters into Jesus' ministry, and there's already a bounty on his head, right? The Pharisees, by the end of 3.6, right, they're out for blood. Now, what has Jesus done to invoke such a response? All right, part of the challenge last week was we got a bit confused on who were the good guys and who were the bad guys. It's easy to mistake given our understanding today of the Pharisees. But I think part of our challenge this week is really our lack of familiarity with things like fasting or even Old Testament notions of the Sabbath. Maybe you hear fasting and you think of something like Lent or Ramadan. Maybe you think of a diet. Maybe you think of Whole30. I don't know what you think, all right? But nearly all Americans, fasting isn't just a weekly part of our own existence. It's not something we would do, for example, twice a week. And the same with the Sabbath. Right, we might know that the Sabbath has something to do with work and something to do with rest. Others you know, might simply resent it because in many counties it means you can't sell alcohol on Sunday. Or even worse, what's worse than that? Yeah, no Chick-fil-A. I knew that's what you were thinking. How many times have you pulled in on a Sunday driving and you see that empty parking lot? And you're like, I know this was meant to be a blessing to Israel, but right now I'm muttering unkind things. Right? In Jesus' day, fasting and the Sabbath had become two of the basic pillars of Judaism. It was as much a daily part of their life as the daily calls to prayer would be in Islam, or, for example, singing the Star-Spangled Banner at the beginning of a baseball game. And on a practical level, these were things that distinctly marked off Israel from the rest of the nations. It defined them as being Jewish It was integral to their religious experience. It was actually a source of great national pride. So for Jesus to challenge these practices, that was a big deal. And yet that's exactly what he does. And last week we saw how he exposed the unrighteousness of the Pharisees really their own self-righteousness, I should say. He exposed the self-righteousness of the Pharisees by embracing unrighteous Levi. That's how he exposed the lack of genuine religion, genuine faith in the Pharisees. And this week, Jesus is going to expose the poverty and the perverseness of religion as it's commonly practiced. And in short, I think this is what Jesus says. The problem with religion is that it elevates the laws of men over love of god if you think it's just sort of a basic summary of our whole text i think that's basically it my best shot All right the problem with religion is that it's going to elevate the laws of men over love of god so why is jesus an enemy of religion if we dig a bit deeper than that, we see two specific reasons. And those reasons are we going to serve as our main points this morning. And the first is this. Jesus is an enemy of religion because first, it promotes sorrow over celebration. Jesus is an enemy of religion first because it promotes sorrow over celebration. This is what we see with that text on fasting in verses 18 to 22. We read in verse 18 now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and said to him, why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. So, you know, in the Bible, to fast is to abstain from food or drink for religious purposes, for spiritual purposes, really. And there are two things to note. You know, it's abstention from food and drink, not from video games or social media. Sometimes we talk about fasting from those things, and maybe in a deeply secondary sense that's okay, but in the Bible, when you talk about a fast, you're talking about fasting from food or water. But secondly, it's done for spiritual purposes. So just to note something distinct about Christian fasting versus other forms of fasting in other religions, the Sabbath was really unique to Israel. Fasting wasn't necessarily unique to Israel, but one thing that did make it unique was they didn't fast in order to make public statements of political dissent. So you can think of Gandhi, or you can think of Guantanamo, like hunger strikes. That's not the kind of fasting the Bible talks about. It's not done to improve personal health. So Hippocrates would famously say that fasting is the greatest remedy. Fasting is the physician within. Many spa centers and and treatment facilities, they actually employ fasting today as part of their regimen and you know, and I, I know it's summer, but just to be clear in the Bible, fasting is not a quick and easy way for you to slim down. Right? It's not how you prepare your body for the beach. That's not the purpose of fasting. Rather, in fasting, we abstain from one good, food, in order to pursue another good, a better good, the supreme good, God himself. And in the Bible, there was actually only one fast commanded of God's people, And that was on the Day of Atonement. You can read Leviticus 16, and the emphasis on that fast, given the day, was one of self-denial and sorrow over sin. But by the days of Jesus, the Pharisees had, in fact, imposed many fasts upon the people. So in the famous parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, do you remember what the Pharisee says? He proudly boasts, what? That he fasts twice a week. And that was their practice, Monday and Thursday. Not just a simple annual fast, but fast, too fast, indeed, every single week. And that became sort of a spiritual litmus test. It became the public display of one's piety. But not only was it to be twice a week, we know from Matthew that, that they actually disfigured their faces. They, they covered themselves in ash. Right? They had turned fasting into this grotesque religious art form. And they had mastered it. Thus they had turned the worship of God into this morose and very melancholy affair. Right? It was loveless. It was lifeless. It was joyless. Which is, in fact, I think, how many people consider Christianity. And Our Christian forebears, if you know much about our own history, were, were the Puritans, and many, I think incorrectly, if you read the Puritans actually, they think of Puritans the same way, of, of loveless, lifeless people. To quote one author, the Puritan hated bear baiting not because it gave pain to the bear, but because it gave pleasure to the spectators. Or H.L. Mencken famously quipped, Puritan, Puritanism was the, the haunting fear that someone, somewhere, just might be happy. All right, all sorrow, no celebration. That's sadly what many assume, and so you can understand the frustration of the Pharisees and John the Baptist, their disciples, because Jesus. Remember in the previous text, the previous section, he's just been at this sweet soirée with with Levi and all of his tax collector buddies. Right? This would have been a nice party. Those folks would have been wealthy, champagne, oyster, caviar. It would have been the party to attend. And while they're gorging themselves, these guys are starving themselves. They're fasting. They're not feasting. So there was no doubt a hint of jealousy in some of these questions toward Jesus, but also some moral indignation. Right, Jesus, where is your religious zeal? Where's your moral rigor? You, you preach this message of repentance back in chapter 1, but where are your own personal acts of repentance? Why aren't you fasting? We all know that in order to be truly spiritual, you've got to be deeply uncomfortable. Isn't that what we all know? Is that how you think about Christianity? To be truly spiritual, you've got to be necessarily deeply uncomfortable? Well, if that's how you think of Christianity, I think Jesus' response is going to surprise you because he'll say in verse 19, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? You know, weddings in Jesus' day were really week-long affairs, plenty of food and wine and song. The parties would often spill out of the homes and spill out into the streets. It was a joyous affair, and it would be, therefore, utterly ridiculous to throw a wedding feast and then prohibit the people from eating. It would be like gathering for a 4th of July party only to say, you know what, no hamburgers, no hot dogs, and certainly no fireworks. Or like going to gather at the Razorback Stadium for the football opener, and you're there only to have the announcer say, hey, this morning, no calling the Hawks. In fact, no cheering at all. It's utter silence for this game. I'd be utterly ridiculous. I mean, obviously, no one would listen to the announcer. But I mean, that's not why you you gather to cheer. It's an appropriate response. Well, Jesus is saying it is equally absurd for you to fast, particularly in all the morose ways that the Pharisees were doing while the bridegroom is with you, while I am here. It's absurd to live in such constant sorrow with me. To not live in celebration. And I think his response, well, it teaches us something about religion and something about Jesus at the same time. First, what does it teach us about religion? Well, religion, as it is often humanly conceived, well, it can be a joyless and a loveless affair. What do you think about punishing pilgrimages? monotonous recitation of tedious prayers that must be said over and over, self-flagellation, whether talking literal or, or metaphorical, things like that mark religious practice. And it becomes all about our performance. How can we impress the divine with all the hard work of our own hands? And religion, therefore, is reduced, what, to discipline, to duty, to drudgery. But, friends, while that may describe religion I hope you begin to see in Jesus' response, and as you read the rest of the New Testament, that actually has nothing to do with biblical Christianity. That has nothing to do at all with it. For religion says, this is what you must do. Christianity says, yeah, I recognize that's what all religions teach. This is what you must do to get good with the gods. But you know what? Jesus did it. Past tense. Nothing for you to do. Nothing for you to do. So when he cried, it is finished on the cross. Friend, he wasn't pretending. He wasn't saying, now listen, I've done my best. I've done my best. Now now go out and attempt to finish it. Give it your best. No, everything that God requires of us, Jesus already accomplished for us. The clear message of the scriptures. And if we grasped that, If we grasped the joy of knowing that our standing with God because of Jesus is eternally secure, if we grasped that whatever trouble we met with in this life, whatever trouble we met with in this life is all the hell that we will ever have, well, friends, our hearts would melt with joy. They would melt with joy. The converted man ought to be the happiest man, right? He knows where he's been. He knows what lies before him. He knows what he deserves, but he knows as well what God has assured. Friends, if you know nothing of that joy, it's possible you just need to be reminded again of the gospel. Christians gather because we can easily, so easily forget these things. And it's in our nation, our nature really, to pursue religion, works, duty, you know, I wasn't raised in a Christian home, and yet I still did barter arrangements with God. I didn't even know if one existed. But I just thought, you know what, I need something. Maybe there's a God. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to say I'm going to do this, and I expect that. I think that's our natural, it's our natural instinct. Friends, if that's your instinct, if that's your life, if that's the, the pressure, the crushing weight of what you live under each and every day, you need the gospel. You need to know that Jesus died on the cross for sinners, not because of any merit within you, but solely out of his love and unconditional grace. And he calls you and says, you can be freed from the crushing penalty and burden of those sins. Place your faith in me, the one who was resurrected from the grave. Trust in me. Repent of those sins. Walk away from them. You know they can't make you happy finally. Not finally. No sin ever does. Maybe for a while, but not finally. Follow me. Trust me. Friends, if you haven't done that, I'd encourage you, I'd plead with you to do that. There is actually, find a genuine Christian, a truly converted man or woman, and you will see joy, a joy that cannot be robbed, a joy that cannot be stolen. But this passage teaches us something about Jesus as well. For in it, if we actually read carefully, we see the astounding claim that Jesus is in fact God. He is in fact God. Now, I recognize that's something that Muslims or Jehovah's Witnesses will deny. Even biblical skeptics out there like Bart Ehrman, if you ever read folks like that, right? he boldly asserted on an NPR interview not long ago that during his lifetime, Jesus never called himself God, didn't consider himself God. Maybe you've heard the same things. Maybe you've come this morning, you believe those same things. But friend, in the Old Testament, Israel's husband, the bridegroom, Is God. Isaiah 54 5. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Right? Whether it's Isaiah or Ezekiel or Hosea, the Lord is always the bridegroom of Israel. Jesus knows this, and yet he will provocatively apply that image only applied to God in the Old Testament, he applies it to himself. He applies it to himself. He is claiming unmistakably here to be God, which makes sense of then of his call for the disciples not to fast. Because, you know, if if I walked into a Sunday school class, you know, an adult Bible fellowship, and I walked in and said, okay, guess what? I'm here. Yeah, I'm here. Let the party begin. I know it's been a hard week, and I know you may have difficulties with your kids. I don't know what struggles, but you know what? I'm here. No, I've come. Let's party. Let's have fun, right? My presence is among you. No more fasting. No more sorrow. It's all joy because I'm here. I mean, you'd think, this guy's delusional, or at least narcissistic, or ridiculous, or whatever. You would think a whole host of things. It's a silly thing for, for me to claim. But not for Jesus. Not if he's genuinely God. That makes perfect sense. But it also reveals something else about Jesus. He is God. He makes that claim very clearly. But as well, Jesus isn't just something that we can add on to our existing life. No, his presence ought to fundamentally transform our lives. And that's what's really meant by those two parables he goes on to to share regarding the cloth and the wine, right? So you don't have to be an expert tailor or seamstress, what have you, to understand that if you have a piece of unshrunk cloth and you sew it to a piece of pre-shrunk cloth and it gets wet and dries, yeah, it's going to tear and you're going to have a bigger problem. That doesn't take a genius to figure that one out. Now, when it comes to the wine and the new wine and the old wineskins, I recognize we're in a Baptist church. All right, this one might be a little bit of a stretch for us, but just hang with me for a moment. Use your imagination. Right, pretend you're Presbyterian. I don't know. You know, in Jesus' day, you wouldn't ferment wine in, in barrels or in large you know, steel vats. You would rather ferment them in animal skins, usually the skin of a goat. And you'd pour that wine in there into that elastic skin and it would ferment, and it would expand and stretch. And then when you poured out sort of the finished wine, right, that elastic wineskin that is now stretched would dry and become very sort of brittle. And so if you poured new wine into old wineskins, once that new wine began to ferment, that old, dry, brittle skin couldn't contain it. It would crack. It would break open, and you'd lose everything. And in both parables, the point is that the new and the old are finally incompatible, right? The old can't really contain the new. There's something bigger. There's an expectation of fulfillment, something expansive that the old simply can't contain. It's why with the coming of Jesus, right, we we don't have the sacrificial system anymore. We don't have the temple. We don't have the same Sabbath practices. There are so many ways in the New Testament that we see religious forms and structures being transformed because of Jesus. But my point, my friend, is that this also means Jesus in your life, he can't merely be an add-on. He can't merely be an extension of your existing life. You know, Gandhi was once asked if he was a Hindu. And he said, yes, I am. And he said, I am also a Christian, a Muslim, a Buddhist, and a Jew. And that works... If following Jesus is nothing more than placing a bumper sticker on the back of your car, place sort of your Christian sticker alongside your Buddhist sticker or your Hindu sticker, and that works. And oftentimes, frankly, that's how we live, right? Being a Christian is nothing more than adding a little church onto your existing life or adding a little Bible into your existing life. Or adding a little Christian fellowship or whatever it might be or some Christian music or some Christian friends into your existing life. And friends, that may be how religion works. But Jesus is saying that's actually not how Christianity works. Jesus isn't something you add on to your existing life. He transforms it and he demands all of your life. All of it. So to place that bumper on that sort of sticker on the back bumper of your car, to place that sort of Christianity sticker there means necessarily that you have to sort of peel every other sticker off. To follow him is to deny all others. And if you haven't grasped that, Jesus is saying, you actually haven't grasped who I am. You haven't grasped what it means to follow me. But Jesus is an enemy of religion, not only because it promotes the kind of sorrow of the Pharisees over celebration, but this is going to move on to our second point, because it promotes precepts over a person. That's the second thing I want us to see. He's an enemy of religion, Jesus is, because secondly, religion promotes precepts over a person. And this is really what the debate about the Sabbath is all about in these next two scenes. Now, many of us, again, have little acquaintance with the Sabbath. Whatever acquaintance we have maybe a burdensome one. You know, just means stores, as we said, are closed. We think of poor Chick-fil-A, right? It's an inconvenience. That's our understanding. But actually, that wasn't Israel's view, right? The average Israelite prized the Sabbath, So most religions, they have their sacred places they might venerate. So whether it's Mecca or maybe the Ganges River. But Israel, in some respects, they venerated time. It was the Sabbath that was so special to them. Alongside circumcision, again, it's what distinctly marked off the people from other nations. It was indeed actually a sign of God's unique affection for Israel. So Ezekiel 20, 12 says, God says, I gave them, Israel, my Sabbaths. As a sign between me and them, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. You know, they cherished that Sabbath, nothing of an inconvenience to them. The Pharisees made it one. But but the Sabbath itself, they cherished that a bit like, you know, an American might cherish the American flag. Or how we might, for example, if we are journalists, cherish the First Amendment, right? Something near and dear to your own heart. Again, a source of national pride. So for Jesus to disrespect the Sabbath, especially in a synagogue of all places, that's a bit like burning the American flag right in front of a military procession as they've come home from battle in order to graduation at West Point. It's a statement. And in verse 23, we read on the Sabbath that, Jesus is there moving through the fields, and, and in 23, some of his disciples begin to pluck some heads of grain, to which the Pharisees respond in 224, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Right? There are no, it's a question, but it, you can tell. It's not really a question. These questions contain very clear, by this point, indictments of Jesus. Now, the fourth commandment called Israel to rest from labor. As God himself had rested on the seventh day of creation. But the Pharisees had actually created more than 39 classes of work that profaned the Sabbath in their minds. Some of them legitimately work, like plowing a field. But other things, like tying a knot, profaned the Sabbath. Writing two letters profaned the Sabbath. So harvesting grain... That would have been a violation of the Sabbath, but merely passing by as the disciples were and plucking a head of grain, nothing in the scriptures prohibited this. And yet the overly zealous and all these scrupulous Pharisees, they had prohibited it. They had woven into this commandment an intricate web of regulations, ostensibly to honor the law, but in effect, it created just this crushing burden upon the people. And friends, I think even in that, that should serve as a... As a warning to us. That we don't add our own regulations to God's Word and then compel others to obey those regulations. You know, even make such regulations the measure of one's piety. You know, how might we do this? I don't know. The Bible prohibits drunkenness. That's very true. It doesn't prohibit drinking. They were drinking at this wedding feast. Right? So you may have your own scruples, but to require others to submit to those scruples and then judge them as less spiritual if they don't, I think that's a bit of a similar warning that Jesus would give, adding regulations that aren't there, judging others' piety as a result of that. Right? This something church leaders can do. You know, I was doing a membership interview, I think it was last week, and uh, it was with a young man, and he said in his church growing up, he was, he was taught by the church, three to thrive and four to soar. And I stared at him just blankly. I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Three to thrive, four to soar. I, I was confused. And he said, no, it was a call. Like, be at church three nights a week to thrive. And four, if you really wanted to soar with God. Like, maybe you've heard such things. Maybe this is the advantage of going to a Unitarian home where you never went to church. I don't know. But I was shocked. i never heard such a thing. Right? But friends... We shouldn't be measuring our piety by, like, how many nights we gather at this church property. That's not a biblical measure of one's own holiness. Right, what about being salt and light to your neighbors? I'd much rather have you here, for example, here on Sunday mornings, as the Lord will call you to, gathering on Sunday nights, like grabbing Sunday as the market day for your soul, right, where you are fed into, poured into spiritually. We get to hear updates, and maybe on a Sunday evening service, have that. But then the other six nights, well, friends, that's your choice. You get to do that, and with that, as you will. Now, I know we have gatherings here on Wednesday night with youth, And those are great. And frankly, I'd love if we had a few more folks to help disciple some younger individuals that we could have a middle school gathering, which we don't currently have. I'd love some volunteers there. So if you want to give two nights a week here, that could be an excellent way to serve others. But that leaves the majority of your nights to do with as you please. I'd encourage you, open up your homes we thought of this some last week. Have hospitality. Have, have hurting Christians or friends or, or non-Christians in and be ministering to them. I think that would, in effect, that would please God a lot more than merely gathering on this property four plus nights a week. And I'm assuming the vast majority of your nights aren't here and for most of you, I hope that's a good thing and you're using that time well. And just a note, a brief note on this. You know, word to parents. Last year, Aaron and I, we felt, frankly, like a bunch of headless chickens running around northwest Arkansas because our children's schedules had dominated our own schedule, orchestra, dance, church on Wednesday. That wasn't really a big thing. Swimming, oh, my word. Like, we were everywhere every night of the week for hours on end going different directions. He had to get, like, a spreadsheet out to sort of figure, figure out the schedules. And it, beyond being exhausting and burdensome, we were just convicted this summer. That was a terrible way to actually shepherd and lead our children. What are we teaching about what's most important? We're exhausted. They're exhausted. We have no time together, no time for our family, our friends, our flock, little time to do hospitality, to have neighbors over. So just to parents, as you're thinking about summer and thinking about fall activities, think about grabbing a few of those nights and just not having anything scheduled so you could have people over, so you could minister to folks. Help is one hurting in need. Again, do evangelism. All right, all this started with the idea that it was four to soar, and I'm saying... Well, maybe, but I don't necessarily think so. Which is probably how Jesus felt, a bit of utter nonsense, when the Pharisees approached him about plucking heads of grain. They had made this a litmus test of spirituality. And instead of correctly, or rather correcting the Pharisees, and like delving into the spiritual arguments and the biblical arguments of the fourth commandment, what Jesus does is he cites David from the Old Testament there. Of when his men were on the run from Saul. There was a bounty on his head. And they arrive at the tabernacle, and there they're given some bread that only the priests were permitted to eat. And it closes in verses 27. And he said to them, this sort of the, what ties up the argument, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. See, Jesus' point is the Sabbath was meant to teach us something. The Sabbath isn't the end but it's rather to point us to something greater. And that is, if the the royal David himself was permitted to eat the bread, then certainly David's greater son, the true prophet, priest, and king of Israel, he also can eat because someone greater than David is now here. That's what Jesus was arguing. The Sabbath was given in order to point Israel to Christ, the one in whom, Hebrews 4, we find our true Sabbath rest. And here Jesus stands before him, that Sabbath rest, and they're rejecting him. So intent on their precepts, they miss the person right before their very eyes. And that's what religion does. It replaces this relationship with God with a set of rules. That's what Larry was praying about earlier from Colossians 2. In effect, religion, if you think about it, religion uses God. It uses him. He says, I'm not really, at the end of the day, interested in knowing you so much as getting something from you. So if I do this, then you're obligated to do that. There's this kind of quid pro quo relationship with us and God. And in the end, religion becomes nothing more than serving ourselves. It's not a means of knowing God and, and cherishing him for who he is. It's a means of getting something from God. And Jesus, again, is saying that's the furthest thing from biblical Christianity. And that's what, he's, that's what he's exposing in that final concluding scene. So if in 2.23 through 2.28, we see the Pharisees and how they reveal that their desire is really for precepts over a Savior. And in 3.1 to 6, again, it's the same love of precept and law over love of neighbor. They miss the Savior above. They're missing the basic command to love neighbor below. Because now we're in the synagogue by the time we get to 3.1. We read there there's a man with a withered hand, so it likely would have been a, a shriveled and a paralyzed hand. The kind of thing he probably would have loved to have kept hidden. And yet we read in 3.2 that the Pharisees watched Jesus. And they watched him to see whether he would heal him, this man, on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. Notice they're using this man with a crippled hand. They're using him as bait. They're using him as a trap. A a trap for Jesus. And friends, you don't have to be Christian. That's just low. And these were the religious leaders. And that's the level they're willing to stoop to in order to trap Jesus. Jesus. And so Jesus, what does he do? He sets a trap of his own. He calls the man forward. He addresses him. No doubt the man probably wouldn't have shown up in the synagogue that day had he thought he was going to have to expose that hand. But Jesus addresses him, tells him to come here, and then he looks to the Pharisees and says, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Now, Of course, the Pharisees know it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And in this case, this wouldn't be human work. This would be the divine work of God to restore this man's hand. Now, when he says to save life or kill, that is immediately a little confusing because nobody's here asking for this man's life to be taken. But Jesus knows that they've set this trap in order to kill him. He recognizes that. He has come to save lives. They have gathered, set this trap in order to destroy the author of life. And that's not lost on him any more than the rumblings were in the beginning of chapter 2 with the authority to forgive sins. He knew the same there. He knows it of them now. He's exposing their heart. He's exposing the Pharisees, their fanatical stubbornness. And what do the Pharisees do? They remain silent. They say nothing. And they condemn themselves. And as soon as Jesus heals the man, we read in verse 6, they waste no time, They hold counsel with Herodians, a group they have no affection for. The only thing they have in common is that apparently both of them loathe Jesus even more than they loathe one another. And they gather with Herodians, holding counsel how to destroy him. They're presented with this opportunity to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with God, and yet they determine to kill him instead. Religion is finally about self-interest. It's an enemy of grace. And that's what angered and grieved Jesus so. And I wonder if there's any way this morning that that might describe you where you've become actually an enemy of grace. You know, recognize if you harbor bitterness this morning and you're unwilling to extend forgiveness you've become an enemy of grace. If you insist on on doing some penance for your sins, if you insist on sort of punishing yourself for your sins as opposed to repenting of them and trusting in the one who has died for them, you've become an enemy of grace. To love the precepts of religion over the person of Jesus, that too is to become an enemy of grace. I wonder, could Jesus possibly be speaking to you this morning? Because at the end of the day, these stories, they're not finally about fasting or the Sabbath. They're not finally about customs or commandments or even caring for the disabled. It's about Christ. All of these revealing something about who this Christ is. His uncompromising authority over all of our lives. He is the Lord, and there's nothing that the Pharisees could do to stop that. There's nothing you nor I can do that will change that. So look at your life and ask yourself, are you in league with Jesus, or have you perhaps set your heart against him? For the problem with religion as we so clearly see, is that it elevates these laws of men over love of God. And Jesus would agree, religion is conceived by men. I think Jesus would agree that religion in that sense does do more harm than good. Look at the examples of the Pharisees. Look at what they're willing to do all in the name of religion. And I don't need to give other historical examples. It promotes sorrow over genuine celebration of celebrating with the bridegroom. It promotes burdensome precepts over the joy of actually knowing a person, a Savior personally. You're either going to be an enemy of religion or an enemy of Jesus. Friend, where does that leave you this morning?